Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week, the jury in the trial of Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo, begins deliberating. He's widely accused of being the head of the world's largest drug cartel, but others see him as a maligned hero. We ask what his months-long trial has revealed. And Japan's schools and businesses have some pretty onerous grooming and wardrobe rules. In some cases, even sock color is mandated. But things seem to be changing, slowly. First up, though. Tonight, President Trump will speak to Congress in his annual State of the Union address. According to the White House, Mr. Trump will make a call for unification and bipartisanship to heal wounds and bridge divides in government. Elsewhere, he's still seeking division, namely with his wall on the border with Mexico. So we're building the wall. It's getting built one way or the other. There's intense speculation about whether he will try to fund the wall by declaring a state of emergency. What are you saying now you expect to declare a national... I don't want to say, but you'll hear the State of the Union and then you'll see what happens right after the State of the Union, okay? State of the Union's important set piece in American politics guaranteed large TV audience for the president and an opportunity for the president to again get people talking about what his agenda is. John Prudo is our United States editor. As ever, there have been some trails from the White House. Jason, I can reveal exclusively that it will be an inspiring vision of American greatness. And not only that, but the speech will be optimistic, unifying, but also inspiring. End quote. The upshot then is a call for bipartisanship and peace, love and harmony in Congress and indeed all over the world, right? What are people going to make of that? There will be more of a call for bipartisanship than in your typical Trump rally speech. But equally, I think it's important to remember that the White House thinks that the president, you know, normally is unifying and bipartisan. That's not the impression that you get if you read his critics. But you know, the White House said similar things around the previous State of the Union. So I don't think it's going to be a great new departure. There'll be similar themes about trade, the way America is getting kind of screwed by foreign countries and relations with China. There will be a certain amount of stuff about immigration and building the wall and so on. I think we, there are some little things that look quite interesting. The president's supposedly going to make a big announcement on HIV saying that he wants the federal government to make a big effort to eliminate HIV in America. But I think most of the speech will be fairly familiar terrain. Um, you mentioned the wall there. There has been some hint that he might make a big announcement and you know what people are reading into that is at last declaring state of emergency as a means to push that forward. Do you expect that to happen tonight? That's right. The president has said ever since the government shut down that he might use emergency powers to build the wall. He has an ability to you know, keep 
attention on him, keep people kind of guessing about what he might do. And this feels a bit like a kind of trail for, you know, keep watching because there might be this... On next week's show. Next week's show, exactly. But there is a very real deadline. The federal funding runs out again on February the 15th. So we're heading back towards shutdown territory. Either that will be averted with some kind of deal or some kind of temporary funding mechanism like we had last time, you know, or perhaps the president this time will go through with it. It is interesting, though, looking back at the State of the Union in 2018, he did propose citizenship for dreamers in exchange for building the wall. If he were to repeat that offer, I think Democrats would jump at it. I don't know if he'd be able to get it through the Senate, but it'd be pretty interesting if he were just to cut and paste that from last year's speech. Do you think there's a real risk, though, that he would jump the gun, as it were, and go ahead and declare a state of emergency? Well, I don't expect it to happen tonight. I suspect if he does that, it would be a bit closer towards February the 15th. And of course, if he does do it, then it'll be challenged in court. So he may not even get his wall that way. And what about this message of unity then? It's, um, they are mightily easy words to say. But you can't imagine that his political foes are going to hear much in it. They are mightily easy words to say. And I think typically to follow through on them, what you have to do is propose something that makes your own side quite uncomfortable. You know, if you're going to take bipartisanship seriously, that requires, by definition, reaching across to the other side and doing something your own party feels uncomfortable about. So it'd be really interesting to watch, see if there is anything in there along those lines. There hasn't really been before. The president's made some noises about infrastructure funding, which is something Democrats would be keen on. Republicans perhaps less so, but there's been very little follow through on that. So I think we shouldn't expect him to suddenly emerge as a completely different president to the president he's been for the past couple of years. But what we have seen in past speeches is as soon as there is sort of conciliatory talk, as soon as there is, you know, uh, a notional extending of the hand is that, ooh, it's all so different. He's being much more presidential and so on. Do you expect that kind of call and response? Yeah, I think there is something in the media ecosystem that everybody wants a change of the story, right? And it would be more interesting at this point if you're a cable news pundit or a columnist, if you can suddenly declare there's been some total transformation of the Trump presidency. And now at this moment, he's really grown into the presidency. We heard a lot of that after his first address to the Congress, also after his first State of the Union last year. And then that doesn't typically last very long. So yeah, I suspect you may see another kind of iteration of that after this one. Well, I mean, this address comes at a tricky time for him. You know, the reason this thing's been delayed is because he got thumped during the shutdown. The Mueller investigation is looming. This is kind of a good time to maybe burnish his image somewhat. Do you think he could use it to sort of win people over? Yeah, it does come at a tricky time for him. And I think it comes at a time where attention is actually less on him than it is normally, if that makes sense. You know, he's been president for a couple of years. It's less new than it was. His party's lost control of the House. So what he says in terms of his policy priorities doesn't carry the same weight that it did before. So perhaps he needs this State of the Union a bit more than he's needed his previous ones. That said, I don't think he's a president who thinks in terms of, you know, looking at his ratings and think, how can I get those people who currently don't like me to like me a bit more? I mean, his approval ratings have been fairly constant since close to the beginning of his presidency, around 40 percent. He just doesn't operate in a way that suggests he's very mindful of winning people over. Right. Well, let me ask you this. The the State of the Union is, well, is a time to give an assessment of the State of the Union. Tell me what you think the State of the Union is, uh, something I can expect not to hear from President Trump tonight. So one State of the Union cliche is the president has to say the State of the Union is X and it's almost always strong or some pleasing adjective like that. America's pretty divided, but I don't think we're in uncharted territory here. And I would say, reflecting on the past couple of years of Donald Trump's presidency, 
I think things have gone better than I expected they would have in January 2017. That's partly to do with the strength of institutions. It's partly to do with the president not being as good at getting stuff done as one might have thought back then. So I would say the State Union is divided, but don't... uh, Don't despair. Don't despair. John, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. It's been billed as the most expensive trial in American history. Now, after 11 weeks and 56 prosecution witnesses, the jury is considering its verdict in the case of Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo. Mr. Guzman faces a life sentence if found guilty of charges including drug trafficking and murder. His empire was so vast that at one point, Forbes magazine listed him among the world's richest people. His capture in 2016 was befittingly dramatic for a man said to be one of the most feared in Mexico. He was extradited to America the following year. Security in New York has been unusually tight. Mr. Guzman has escaped from prison in his home country of Mexico twice. And the trial itself has not been short of sensation. It included an allegation that Mr. Guzman gave the former Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto a bribe of $100 million, a claim that both men deny. For its part, the defense only offered one witness, a single FBI agent. Mr. Guzman himself decided not to take the stand. The main characteristic that anybody needs to do well in the drug trafficking business and in organized crime in general is the ability to threaten and and use extreme violence. Tom Wainwright is an editor at The Economist, who, until 2013, was our Mexico City correspondent. He's also the author of Narconomics, a book that investigates the world's drugs trade. This is a business in which you obviously can't use the courts to enforce contracts, and so violence or the threat of it is the way that business gets done. And he is said to have a string of murders behind him, which is why he now finds himself on trial in the United States. And Tom, tell me, who is El Chapo? What do we know about him? Well, he's said to be the leader of the Sinaloa Cartel, which is the most powerful drug trafficking organization in Mexico and indeed the world. He's been in and out of trouble with the law all his life, and this isn't the first time that he's been arrested and put on trial. He actually was imprisoned before in Mexico, but escaped hiding in the bottom of a laundry cart underneath dirty laundry. He was then recaptured, but escaped again, this time through a a long tunnel that people dug underneath the prison, somehow without the guards knowing what was going on. Uh, quite apart from his uh, alleged role, what's he like as a person? What do we know about him as a, as, a, as a guy? Well, the trial has revealed one or two things about him that perhaps weren't known before. Some of the sort of glamorous life of this narcotraficante has been brought out into the open. And we've heard about how he had a, a private zoo with lions and tigers. Uh, he had a yacht called El Chapito, which is like Little Chapo. And it, also, it, we've seen how actually he seems to be kind of vain. He supposedly would go to Switzerland for anti-aging treatments. And once when he was on the run, he wrote to his wife to send him a few essentials, which included 
black dye for his moustache. So he's a alleged drug trafficker who really cares about his appearance, it seems. Do you think sort of taking him out of circulation, if you like, um, has has materially changed the, the drugs trafficking business in, in Mexico? It does seem to have changed things a bit, possibly not in the way that the government might have liked. Uh, you might have thought that taking... Mexico's most wanted man out of circulation might have led to a drop in the level of drug-related violence. But if anything, actually, since then, things have got worse. 2018 had the highest number of murders uh, in decades. And what we've seen in Mexico in the past year or so is that the organised nature of the drugs business has broken up into a situation where we've now got lots of smaller cartels which are scrapping for power over little bits of territory here and there. And that means that actually the level of violence has gone up, which is, a, needless to say, a huge problem for everyday Mexicans. And what is the government doing about that? I mean, Mexico has a, has a new president. Is, is there an evident change in, in the policy? There's certainly a change of tone from President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, but he hasn't so far come up with any policies which people think are likely to really end this. And I think the the sad truth is that as long as America keeps importing large quantities of a product which it also insists must be illegal, uh, Mexico is going to have a very big criminal problem. And how is the trial being being viewed in, in Mexico? What, what do ordinary Mexicans think of this sort of big high stakes, high visibility trial? I think they're fairly gripped by it. I mean, it's worth saying this is the kind of trial that in Mexico doesn't really happen. Justice in Mexico is much less transparent than in the United States. You don't have these public adversarial trials. It all really happens behind closed doors. And so the sight of this guy on trial and hearing public testimony from various other big names in the drugs business is something that I think people are, are gripped by. And he has a reputation in Mexico which is very mixed. I mean, he's a villain to many people, but to others, he's something of a hero. And when he was arrested in Mexico, uh, people took to the streets and uh, one might have thought that they were there to celebrate his arrest, but actually some of them were there saying that this was a bad thing and that they supported him. In Sinaloa, he has a real following and you've probably heard of these so-called narco-corridos, the, the sort of ballads I, in I praise. Hadn't. Oh, really? Well, they're, they're big news in, in Mexico and they're ballads in praise of drug traffickers. There's one about El Chapo, which literally means kind of a short guy. There's one about him that says, from his feet up to his head, he's a little short in stature, but from his head up to the heavens is how I calculate his height, for he is a giant among giants. So, so this is just almost like standard sort of hero-making stuff, Robin Hood-type stuff, right, where the, the, the notionally bad are, are celebrated in song. That's right. And it's an example of how the cartels actually care quite a lot about PR and, and almost a kind of corporate social responsibility in some ways. It's completely cynical, but they do go around splashing money on projects in their hometowns in Mexico. And El Chapo is said to have spent a lot of money on things like social housing projects in Sinaloa. There's even a kind of primitive social security system. And they do this in order to get local people to support them, because the more popular support they have, the less chance they is of them being reported to the authorities. And so many of them actually deliberately spend money on trying to cultivate their reputations for exactly this reason. 
So, so um, quite apart then from the um, public reaction, I, the the point of the trial must surely be to to bring someone to to attempt to bring somebody to justice, um, and to make an example of him. Do you do you think this trial has done that? I mean, what what have we learned in the course of of this big showpiece trial that we didn't know before? I think it's been quite valuable. I mean, El Chapo was someone who, when I was in Mexico, had a sort of image of being almost untouchable. You know, people thought he would never be brought to justice and he had been imprisoned before, but he'd escaped. And and it was as though he was out there almost mocking the government all the time. And so I think the fact that he was brought down did certainly make people in Mexico see that nobody was completely above the law. And of course, putting him on trial in the States and sending him, if he is convicted, to an American prison is a different business from sending him to a Mexican prison. He's going to find it a lot harder to escape if he does end up in jail in the United States. So I think in that sense, it matters. But I'm not sure that the impact on people in the drugs business will be all that strong. I I think the incentives for going into this business will remain. A a very large number of people will still want to follow in his footsteps. And so I think the end of his career does not sadly mean the end of his industry. Thanks for your time, Tom. Thank you. How often do you think about how your appearance matches up to that of those around you? Hello, Jason. Sarah Burke is our Tokyo bureau chief, and in a recent conversation, she had some interesting questions to ask me. Are you have you shaved recently? Uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, what color is your hair at the moment? Uh, natural color. You know, chestnut brown, let's call it. Uh, okay, that sounds okay. And uh, did you iron your shirt this morning? I must admit, I didn't. Why, why are you asking me all this? I'm asking because so I've been out reporting here on some sort of slightly illiberal rules at Japanese companies and schools about what people's personal appearance should look like, among other things. Okay, give me an example. What, what kind of rules are we talking about? So there's a lot in schools. They regulate what colour underwear girls can wear. It's usually white, whether they can style their eyebrows or their hair or use hair products. Um, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Japan, but what what sort of sticks out in my memory is the wildest nonconformist, the most high-fashion, cutting-edge type stuff. And certainly that's the the stuff that escapes the the country into the the wider world. I wouldn't have expected them to be quite so prescriptive. why, Why do these rules notionally exist? You know, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I've noticed since moving here over two and a half years ago is the impression that we have of outside of Japan, you know, robots, bright lights, weird hair, weird clothing. It's sort of not the norm here. I mean, Japan is a very conformist society still. And so these rules sort of guide everything. The idea is that everything works more smoothly and that the social harmony if everyone does the same sort of thing. And and what about the enforcement? I mean, some, some of this stuff seems uh, pretty hard to police, for one thing. I mean, schools seem to, they do seem to enforce it, you know, companies too, but it's mainly self-policing to a large extent. I mean, you know, people don't want to stick out and so they regulate their behaviour according to what other people expect or tell them to do. But, I mean, if the rules become too onerous or too invasive, I mean, that can't be good for, for even the school kids, right? I mean, no. Truancy is rising in Japan and a survey a few years ago found that one of the reasons that children cited when asked why they were skipping school was some of the sort of silly 
clear rules that they didn't like. And there's even a word here, shidoshi, which means committing suicide because of onerous school rules. So yeah, it's, it's a serious problem in some cases. And one that's getting worse? I mean, one thing you notice is that there are more people pushing back against these rules. So people sort of saying, you know, this seems a bit odd or I've been abroad and this doesn't seem to be what happens there. There's also been a couple of quite interesting recent court cases. So one in Osaka recently found in favour of two metro drivers who'd argued that the rules at their employer that they had to shave their beards had actually infringed their personal freedom. And it also caused them to have lower bonuses and worse performance reviews. And the court said this was not right and they should be compensated. There's actually another case also in Osaka due to be coming before the court by a pupil who is saying that her school has made her dye her naturally brown hair black. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what the court finds in that case too. That is madness. Uh, (laughs) Do do you think this this pushback is a matter of people wishing to be less conformist or people wishing to have less enforced conformity? I mean, again, it's hard to tell, but I would say there is a little bit of bristling and movement against conformity, especially when it comes to things that are so obviously absurd, such as whether you have a beard or not when you're driving a, a subway train. And dyeing your hair to, to fit it. Uh, well, especially when it's the difference between brown and black hair, yes. Nice. Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.